This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show that began as a podcast in 2011. We did various summer film shows over the years and finally became a regular show on the RRR programming grid in 2014. Well, we're back. They let us back for a second year as a regular program, kicking off tonight with our very first show of the year. My name is Thomas Cordwell, and I'm joined tonight by Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good evening to you both. Good evening and happy anniversary. Yeah, good evening. All or both. Good evening, both. Before we go any further, I gave that brief introduction about the history of Plato's Cave at the top of the show because I did want to acknowledge that we've been going for almost four years and we did start as an official Triple R podcast, which consisted of myself, Josh and Tara Judah. Tara has been with the show ever since, including all throughout last year, and was a core part of what made the show what it is today. Now, at the end of last year, Tara told us she was heading over to England, uh, where she has previously lived, and she's got a lot of connections there, a lot of professional and personal connections, and she wasn't too sure whether it was going to be a visit or something more. Uh, and this is why we didn't say anything last year, because we weren't too sure exactly what was what was happening. Uh, since then, Tara has served on the Fipreski jury at the International Film Festival Rotterdam. She's reported from the Berlin International Film Festival and achieved a bunch of other things that would make it insane for her to come back to Melbourne in the near future. So Europe's film culture's gain is sadly Melbourne's loss, and we are officially bidding Tara adieu from Plato's Cave. She's exited the cave and she's found the light. Nice work, Thomas. She got out. Look, we're going to miss her a lot, and we know that you all out there will miss her as well. I'd just like to say thank you to Tara for your friendship, for being such a great broadcaster, and for being essential in the formation of Plato's Cave and helping us get this show on air in the first place. I'm pretty sure Tara at some point will pop up on Triple R again in some guise. But for now, Josh Cerise, we have a show to do. Tonight, we won't be following our usual format of discussing three films in depth, as instead we're going to take a quick look at several of the films that have come out in Melbourne cinemas in 2015 so far. We're going to focus on some of the more interesting ones, or at least the ones that have generated some interesting discussion. There's been a whole heap of biopics and films based on real events, which have once again stirred up the old artistic licence versus responsibility to the truth debate. We will get on to that a bit later, because first, I think we're all dying to discuss the film that explores the boundaries between fantasy and reality, art and commerce, authenticity and cynicism, and a whole lot more. We're going to talk about Birdman. Or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. That is its subtitle. Um, I feel like I've been singing the praises of Birdman for the best part of the last two months, actually, and, and I still haven't lost the kind of the buzz. I've seen it twice now. Um, if you haven't seen it, and it has been released in cinemas here for, I think, nearing a month now, the film revolves around a character called Regan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton. He's a well, an ex-Hollywood actor famed for his portrayal of Birdman, a superhero comic figure in the 90s, and he's shipped over to, to Broadway where he's trying to uh, adapt, direct and star in an adaptation of a Raymond Carver short story called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. And this sort of sets the scene for a film about the world of theatre and, as you mentioned, Thomas, the blurring of boundaries between things like um, celebrity persona and, and the authentic you know, actor, reality and fantasy, art and commerce, um, ageing and, and legacy and, and, I guess, kind of cultural relevance. So the, the film sort of revolves around 
around the Keaton figure and, and toys with a number of these themes. And we should give a shout-out to some of the other cast members who I think are really superb in this film, in addition to Keaton. Ed Norton plays a, um, a kind of very arrogant Broadway actor who fills in a role. We have Zach Galifianakis in a really decent role for a change. Emma Stone, Adria, uh, Andrea Riseborough, Naomi Watts, Lindsay Duncan. It's a really kind of all-star cast. Look, I, I, probably a leaping-off point, and one of the things I really loved about this film was the way it reminded me, and it's on my brain anyway, but all about Eve, a film, if you can remember, which starred Betty Davis as an ageing theatre actor on Broadway, um, sort of confronting her own uh, mortality, I guess, as a, a female you know, dread horror shock who's just turned 40 and is now kind of washed up um, and struggling with kind of her artistic relevance and playing off the persona that is her character of Margot Channing in that and the kind of off... I guess, off-stage relationships with various people. And this film really sort of strikes a chord in, in a very much of sort of a, from a, the perspective of the male figure in terms of Keaton. So it's interesting the way it sort of duplicates that. But look, uh, look, I love this film. I think from the score point of view, from a stylistic point of view, uh, look, it's just such a clever, interesting film that I, I really can't find fault with, Cerise. Well, certainly it's also formally adventurous and it's, it's great... Um uh, look, it's more than a gimmick. It transcends its gimmickry. Uh, it gives the illusion of being a single take when it couldn't possibly be, um, couldn't possibly be narratively, let alone uh, actually. Uh, it, it's a slightly different approach to the Iranian film of last year, Fishing Cat, which messed with minds and uh, this the, the film that actually was a single take. That was a single take, probably, yeah. The, the even though it run around behind the camera to yeah. restart for flashbacks and stuff. Yeah, even yeah. though that was narratively impossible and it restaged scenes from different perspectives, but all within the one shot somehow. Whereas this, uh, but this, this is uh, something I was just lending extra extra uh, fuel to the, 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 the trying to determine what in this film is, is uh, the reality and the fantasy um, experienced by its protagonist who is becoming increasingly unhinged as the birdman of his past uh, seems to make itself manifest in various ways including strange telekinetic ways uh, and trying to determine any point where he might actually uh, be more Birdman and less himself is quite difficult. I don't know, Josh, if you've seen it twice now, Thomas Odessa, you've seen it more than once as well, if you have actually determined <laughs> that point. I, I've only seen it the once, and so I, I cannot tell. Yeah, I, I, think I, mean, I think the film really beautifully signposts quite early that the whole film is his point of view and it's mentally subjective and it's it's not just things like you know when he's alone he imagines himself having this power to move things with his mind i think that extends to whole other facets of the film like you know he's paranoid about the edward norton character and his daughter played by emma stone so what happens with those characters could be a projection of his paranoia uh there is you know there are two leading ladies in this film who are very attractive and there's a scene that happens between them that seems really odd and i think the best way to interpret that is again that's something that's happening in his mind the confrontation with with the critic where he sort of attacks the critic there's also a moment in that scene where he grabs a glass and smashes it on the ground in a public bar and no one reacts so i think again that could be interpreted as as within his mind um i think towards the end of the film there are two clear points where he could interpret as he going into a fantasy land and i think the first time i saw it i thought it was the latter point but watching it a second time i think he goes into complete fantasy land way earlier than i initially suspected but that's part of the fun of the film but I don't think I'm giving away anything with talking about this film. It's highly up to interpretation, and that, in a really strong way, I think it's really, really fun trying to pick the line between what's real and what's
what's in his mind. Yeah, look, and sometimes the film sort of foregrounds the disparity between those two realms. I mean, there's one that the sequence or sort of a, what appears to be a fantasy sequence ends with the kind of the entrance of a taxi driver kind of stage left to suggest that actually he may not have uh, entered the theater by flying he may have actually caught the taxi but there's some small details which i picked up on a second viewing that are in the background the sort of the use of props the mise-en-scene um and, and also the way the film sort of loops back on itself in terms of chronology because there's a scene early on when they're having a rehearsal and one of the actors is over emoting and he actually says was that too much i can do it again and then something happens to this poor actor and we see a character later on in what appears to be a drunken stupor from the michael keaton's perspective where there's a man performing macbeth outside a liquor store and he says the same thing he says was that too much i can do it again and he's he's bearing the kind of hallmarks of a sort of a head injury so again the whole film sort of collapses in on itself i think in a really sophisticated way it's not simply screaming at the audience look how clever i'm being look how self-referential i'm being this is not a film that screams in flashing lights postmodernism. i think it's a really mature take on all the various themes that you mentioned before that said if it weren't michael keaton in the lead role would the whole thing collapse it possibly would because his casting is so key to this and i looked up his recent filmography i was very surprised to see he hasn't actually uh, been out of work for the last however many years he just has been in some very low-key roles and lending his voice to various animated features but I, I hadn't actually seen him on the big screen in I don't know how many years. Has he played the lead since Multiplicity? Uh, I, I don't Desperate know. Measures. That was uh, oh, the Andy Garcia film. Yeah, quite an interesting thriller that kind of I think got forgotten because it was it was regarded as a bit B grade. But from memory, that was a uh, uh, Barbara Schroeder. Am I pronouncing that right? Directed it. Uh, Barbara Schroeder sounds yeah. about <laughs> yeah, right. Sounds yeah, right. yeah, that's a film I'd love to revisit. But no, he's he was the voice of the Ken doll in the Toy Story yes. films. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't made that connection. No, I hadn't either, I, and I spotted that when I scanned that filmography. And oh, okay. But otherwise, it looked like a lot of B-grade uh, schlocky mm. nonsense. And he's yeah. played some wonderful FBI agents and police time. I mean, the, um, Jackie Brown, he's a fantastic well, cameo. He's, he's in done that. all the cameo work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a long time ago, and out of, and out of sight too. Also, this is <laughs> still the '90s, I think. In the so. late '90s, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. Uh, apparently, it wasn't written specifically for him, but but when it, when the script came together, the directors very much said, "We need Michael Keaton. He's the perfect person for this." And I mean, I don't know. Every single review has referenced Michael Keaton's very famous role from the past and how that evokes Birdman oh, do we need to say it? Batman, Birdman <laughs> Tim Burton, I mean there's even a quite an appointed reference where he says the last sequel that he did was in 1992 which I think it was the same year as Batman Returns, was Batman Returns. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean it, but what, I, yeah, it's inter- that's a level of intertextuality but the film doesn't rest on that either. I Look, I think what makes Keaton's performance in this so amazing is Keaton's performance. I don't think you need to have, that, you know, even if that association with his past as Batman wasn't around, we would still love his role in in this film uh, really strong soundtrack too and I heard the rather sad news that it wasn't eligible for the Academy Awards because there's too much pre-existing music that's used in the soundtrack so the existing soundtrack wasn't allowed to be entered into the Academy Awards which apparently was fairly heartbreaking breaking for antonio sanchez the composer this marvelous drum soundtrack this incredible percussion soundtrack that just fills you with so much kind of anxiety and energy and, and mystique three triple On Triple R, we are the team from Plato's Cave, Josh, Cerise and Thomas. We've had our gush about Birdman. We've got that out of our system. Now, let, let's address 
this sort of influx of, and I think most of them have come out now because it's connected to the fact they've been nominated for Academy Awards, but all these based on a true story uh, biopic films that have come out recently. I should say at the top, though, we're not going to talk about Unbroken, the Angeline Jolie film, because none of us got to see it. But let's start off by talking about The Imitation Game, The Theory of Everything, and American Sniper, because I think these films have got some common points that we may want to address and contrast with each other. They're all films about very famous men who are famous for very particular things, and I think it's heavily debatable about how much those men contributed to the world being a better place. One of the things that people have been talking about with all these films is this issue of... uh, Artistic license versus telling the truth. Now, in general, I'm very much from the position that these films are based on a true story. They're not documentaries. Uh, It's not quite cut and dry as that when we're talking about people who are still alive or people who are maybe the children of people who are still alive. There's some sensitivity that has to be uh, put into place. But I don't think cinema has to literally show you what happens. I, I think what happened... You know, in theory, anyway, I think liberties can be taken to for storytelling reasons. I've got a good example of this, which we might talk about later in the show when we discuss Foxcatcher. But from my point of view, the imitation game and the theory of everything, which I think are more or less fairly standard biopics that I quite enjoyed, and and sort of, I think it's worth acknowledging that the theory of everything is not just about Stephen Hawkins; it's about Stephen Hawkins and his first wife. I think it's actually a film that tells both their stories. These were films that I think have, from what I can gather, have taken quite big liberties with the truth, but I think convey a sense of sincerity and truth about who those people were, what their contribution to the world was. As an exception to that uh, is American Sniper, which is... Now, I've read all sorts of things about how this film allegedly doesn't represent its protagonist at all correctly. Um, apparently, the, the, the person he was based on, by many accounts, was quite a psychotic person. Um, there's a lot of debate about who the true person was, but the film itself felt incredibly phony to me, and that, that's the difference between these two forms of storytelling. American Sniper just did not ring true because of a lot of filmmaking decisions that were made. Where do you both stand on this? Oh, this is a big topic. This is the Pandora's box of uh, of the evening, perhaps. Should I, ju- should I keep oh, going? Oh, please do. Yeah, um, yeah go for it. Uh, look, perhaps I should stay, say from the outset that one of my problems of the biopic as a, as a narrative form is that unless you're actually making a comment on the subject or the era or that, often biopics feel really episodic, like they're just ticking the boxes of key events of a person's life. And to be honest, I find them pretty bland when they take that approach. And this is why maybe we'll signal Foxcatcher to come back to as something of a point of distinction there. Um, and I thought, look, the imit- imitation game, the Alan Turing uh, film, I thought was interesting. I, I think I referred to it as sort of a polish drama. Look, it doesn't try and reinvent the wheel. It doesn't try and extend itself in it's any kind real of on artistic... par with the King's Speech. It's, it's that kind of film. Yeah, look, I, yeah. Think, I think that's a really good comparison too. I haven't seen the theory of everything. But the thing, the issue I wanted to raise in terms of American Sniper, um, which was probably one of the kind of the key critical debates over, over the summer, at least sort of within critics, critical circles, is what is this film? And everyone from Seth Rogen to Noam Chomsky seemed to be weighing in on whether this film was proto-fascist or whether it was propaganda, whether whether it was pro-war or anti-war. Um, from a point of view, from that debate, I find it was strange that this was the film that seemed to be the, the locust of that debate 
given how many films that I've found far more right-wing, like overtly right-wing, um, over the last four or five or six years, and I'd like to highlight Peter Berg as a filmmaker who I think was far more deserving of that critical spotlight. Um, but for me, the film just feels like it's torn in so many different directions, which is actually what made it interesting for me and what makes, I think, Eastwood and his failures interesting as a filmmaker because on the one hand, he represents the American right in terms of politics, but he's also in some ways anti-war and he actually spoke out against Iraq and Afghanistan. And the film is trying to find this middle ground for a character who, as you said, is, and I've read some of Chris Kyle, the Navy SEAL that Bradley Cooper plays, who refers to the Iraqis as savages and and is quite gung-ho and embraces his job as the most dangerous American sniper of all time. And he tries to humanise him and the film seems caught between all these competing um, decisions and it doesn't ever really give us a critical distance of his character. And I don't think the film works because it seems to be pulled in so many different genre directions, uh, biopic directions, like whether it's trying to deal with the war in a critical manner as well. So I think the film is a kind of failure, but I don't think it is the clear-cut black-and-white proto-fascist film that many people are making it out to be. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. I did feel to be quite muddled uh, and and also in in its attempts to give some sort of uh, primal scene. Uh, a typical uh, narrative strategy is to go back to a childhood event, a seminal moment in a, a protagonist's life, and in this case it's going hunting with Dad and being given a little lesson, uh, an object lesson in masculinity, and and then a, a, a subsequent episode where he, um, him and his little brother uh, get another little object lesson at the dinner table over what one does when uh, one finds oneself in conflict uh, and uh, what the consequences are if you don't somehow stand up for yourself or stand up for your uh, kin. Uh, And this evidently leads to psychopathy, but um, institutionally approved psychopathy. Um, And in terms of framing him as a hero, I do think the film is ambivalent about that. Um, He's an all-American hero type, um, and yet the film definitely does hedge its bets as to whether his actions are laudable within the realms of uh, uh, warfare and its conventions or within a a broader context of contemporary America. Um, I mean, I found him eminently unlikable, which is, I think, actually a testament to Bradley Cooper's as a performer. He's very good, and he's uh, bodily inhabits this role. Uh, but I, look, I knew nothing about this person beforehand, and I don't really feel my life much the richer for knowing more about him for having seen the film, because my interest in people who shoot one another is generally pretty low. Yeah, look, I, I actually quite enjoyed this film. I, I, I really like Clint Eastwood as a director, and I think he is a very curious filmmaker. I've often thought of him as a very progressive filmmaker in many ways. I mean, so many of his films, especially his classic westerns, seem to be um, anti-revenge narrative films, looking at how revenge is so soul-destroying for, for communities and for the individual. Um, I, what I found slightly insidious about American Sniper is... And and why I think it's getting the backlash but not other films is it is based on very true, very recent events. And I think it does re... It, it, it delivers its own facts that certain audiences in America are dying to hear, which don't correlate with real facts. So the film 
establishes quite an overt link between 9-11 and going to fight in Iraq. There's no question in this film, I think, that that's not a good idea. There is no question in this film that the Americans are being fed false intelligence and that a lot of Iraqi people are being slaughtered. Um, every Iraqi, with, with a notable exception, every Iraqi character in this film are, are villains and they turn out to be people who betray the Americans or in the, in, in, in the, the character of the, the rival sniper, a supervillain. He's not even a character. He, he's like something from a comic book. The only innocent Iraqis we see are a father and son who die at the hands of other Iraqis in a scene that could have come straight out of the Hostels series. Like, it's really graphic and violent. And I think that's what's troubled so people. This So much has come out about the war on terror since, you know, that the, the information about weapons of mass destruction was wrong. The, the, the links between Iraq and 9-11 are tenuous at best. A lot of civilians died when they should not have and there's a huge audience in america who really wants a film to tell them no no actually that's all that's not true let's pretend we haven't discovered these facts here's the version of the story you want and i think there are scenes in this film where you're meant to feel a bit of a surge of hurrah when they grab the guns and they go off and they start shooting iraqis to revenge their friend i think the film by not showing us what happens to him at the very end is a massive cop-out i mean the fact that and this is not a spoiler because you know it's on the record he, he died by being shot by another a marine now, but another another soldier, another person in the armed forces. Now that just doesn't suit the narrative of this film to show that guns are bad and that the Americans killed the wrong people. So we don't see that in a film that's trying to present itself as being ambivalent and, and, and truthful. So that's what I meant about so much of this just rang hollow and, and false to me. Yeah, look, I think the, the points you've raised are completely valid. I think a far more adventurous film, and admittedly, it probably one that wouldn't have Chris Kyle posthumously listed as an executive producer would have explored and that would have been the narrative launch point of the this idea of maybe drawing some correlation between the violence of america culturally and overseas and the violence that comes home to roost like we see that he's killed by one of his own not by the enemy over there that is an interesting starting point that the film completely yeah. ignores and doesn't want to explore at all oh well the worst thing this film does is when it does actually raise the issue of his post-traumatic stress the explanation is not that he was horrified by what he did or what he saw, but he's, he's suffering from this stress because he didn't get to save enough Americans. And I thought that was an awful detail to put in the film and quite flippant and disrespectful to people who are suffering huge uh, mental anxiety over what's happened to them as a soldier. I mean, we saw that character in his brother who's very dismissed as being a bit snivelling in the film. So... Yeah, my talk. I, I really enjoyed watching this film, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought that was a really insidious lie. Yeah, it's a little nasty, isn't it? Uh, I don't know, do we want to dwell in this much longer or consider some of the other two films you raised in this little bracket already? Would well, you want to share your thoughts on The Imitation Game? Well, we, I, we've both liked it as a tick yeah, the boxes Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, but, uh, you know, these issues of of how much fealty to the, um, the truth uh, films ought to have does come up with The Imitation Game. It, it, it's a curious one because Alan Turing is an extraordinarily significant human being. Uh, each of us daily wanders around with these little smart devices on us which are now so sophisticated yet would uh, not have come into being were it not for his wartime efforts uh, developing the Enigma machine and cracking German codes Uh, and yet barely anybody knows his name uh, Mm. perhaps prior to this film outside of programmer circles and, and 
And yet, there's, there, there are things in this one that definitely ring false, and a lot of people have taken a lot of objection to suggestions that he might have um, uh, held in his confidence the fact that he was working alongside somebody who was probably selling out the, uh, the, his own team, uh, that his uh, homosexuality was used to um, keep him quiet about certain things. You know, is this, is this just necessary for dramatic effect to make the film more interesting? Because there doesn't seem actually any evidence for that so it is i think that is very problematic same time look benedict cumberbatch is a hugely compelling figure in this i don't know he's doing anything terribly much outside of his usual range but he's absolutely compelling and the film has lots of wit and warmth and a a lot of stiff upper lip britishness and charles dance is quite a lot of fun as he gets more and more frustrated as he gets Um, more charles dancey yeah yeah um, with all that (laughs) pent-up britishness that he's dying to (laughs) to vent somehow and is denied my thing with the imitation game is what made turing some of the amazing details about him is that he was the guy who cracked this code and invented computers like effectively saved the world and revolutionized the world and the film conveyed that for me and the tragedy of what happened to him is because of his sexuality he was horribly persecuted and uh, and what you know, some awful things happened to him as a result and the film also very much conveyed that as well like it wasn't pretending otherwise but it was also saying what defined him and his greatness was his work and that's what the film looked at yeah, I find it problematic too, actually, sure. that um, the whole thing, the narrative proper was framed as uh, information given in a police interview once he's been caught for engaging in depraved homosexual acts um, with a consenting other human um, because, you know, supposedly he'd been hushed by MI6 mm. um, and then suddenly in order to contextualise the fact that he had a homosexual liaison, he spills all of the state secrets he's held uh, quiet uh, for five, six years since the war. It's all very peculiar. It's a strange framing device to me, so it's all... But it's very much a criticism against the establishment about what the British government did to him. I don't think the film is at all critical of the fact he was homosexual. I don't think the film is necessarily critical. I just think it's an unlikely means of uh, him... So you're saying it's a lazy narrative device? I think it's a very lazy narrative device because it just doesn't ring true. Why would he volunteer all that information just because he's been busted for having a shower? That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, um, what's the other one? The theory of everything. Look, we just mentioned that we both very much like that. And I think it strengthens, it tells both stories. I mean, all these stories of men that have come out, and there's a lot of debate recently about why aren't there more stories about strong women in, in cinema, and I think it's a very valid debate. Um, although in the case of Turing and Hawkins, I think there are men who, who deserve this recognition. So it's not, let's do this instead of this. It's like, let's do this as well as this. And I did like the theory of everything because it showed us the significance of who his first wife was. Was, you know, the fact that she had to live with enormous pressures of being married to a brilliant husband who also needed 24-7 care. Yeah, and the film doesn't entirely sugarcoat some of the uh, less pleasant aspects to their partnership, especially as it starts to crumble and adultery comes in from d- different angles. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that, it, it, it's quite actually in some parts of stylish film. There's just some gorgeous cinematography, not mm. least when fireworks are going off behind some already spectacular buildings on campus at Cambridge University. I've met film critics who hate fireworks in cinema. They think it's become the biggest cliche, but I love it. I think it yeah. always looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think they look spectacular, actually. Well, James Marsh yeah. directed it. I mean, he's a very strong director, so yeah, known yeah. for his documentaries mainly. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of wit and warmth and Britishness. And uh, David Thewlis in a role that um, really threw me because he was just so... 
uh, convincingly plummy and proper and upright and not the least bit sort of ragged and uh, <laughs> sinewy and uh, menacing. And uh, I, I, I actually did really enjoy it. And I enjoyed Eddie Redmayne's performance. Uh, it's the best I've ever seen him do. I haven't been sold on him yet, but yeah. this was quite an amazing performance, yeah. Yeah, and, and bodily as well. Mm. Um, you know, I know for some people it can get into controversial territory when somebody is, as uh, some folks might indelicately put it, cripping up, but mm. there's not really any other way to uh, cast somebody in a narrative like this where you need somebody bodily able and then later not bodily able mm. in the same film. So, um, And I, I think he is superb. And uh, a scene where he actually just falls over early on, I felt that just absolutely... Uh, and it, That's visceral, it's isn't it? It's really you feel visceral. feel the crunch of the face hitting the pavement, yeah. 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 Um, which is a, a tribute to actor and director, cinematography, the whole crew, really, because I, I, yeah, I felt that profoundly. And that really, that wasn't the trigger point. That was already a symptom, as mm. we learn, and... Yeah, and of course, because Hawking is such a visible person um, and audible in a very uh, uh, particular way to, to this day, uh, it's, um, you know, it's a, a risky proposition for an actor to take on someone as, as famous for uh, being so idiosyncratic as Hawking is. So, uh, well played, Eddie Redmayne, I say. Agreed. And all the films we're talking about tonight are still in cinemas in Melbourne, so you can still catch all these films. Uh, a couple of films that we did touch on there in our conversation were Foxcatcher and in Wild. I sort of kind of hinted at Wild talking about films where um, real-life women are the main characters. So we're going to get onto those very, very soon. You're listening to 3 Triple R. This is film, film criticism on Plato's Cave. <laughs> Triple R. We just heard from a chap named David Bowie. That was a song he wrote called Fame, as heard in the film Foxcatcher. We're talking. Uh, we're looking at all the films that sort of screened in, in Melbourne to date of, of significance, and we're sort of focusing a lot on based on true story films. And this is a really interesting one. It did involve some very famous people. Nobody who I knew about before seeing this film. But yeah, this is a, a cold, interesting clinical study of, uh, you know what, Behind the Candelabra, The Master and then Foxcatcher, I'm saying, is an unofficial trilogy of American <laughs> films where men have very unhealthy father-son relationship dynamics that, you know, that, that, that those other two don't go sexual like they do with Behind the Candelabra, but there is a hint of that. I think there's more than just a hint. I mean, the whole film's about wrestling, and uh, the homoeroticism just in that sport is surely uh, omnipresent. Or is that just me and what I project? <laughs> I don't think that's a stretch to say that. No, I think no. that's fair enough. Uh, look, film from uh, director Bennett Miller. Uh, I was impressed with Capote those years back. Uh, I think this is possibly a stronger film. It's a very austere film um, and a very actorly film in which the likes of Steve Carell behind a weird beaky nose... Um, uh, as he uh, seems to identify something of a bird man, seeing as we've been speaking of bird man already. It's very deliberately there to evoke the birds in the well, film. Well, yeah. it really is. Yeah. I mean, he goes by the nickname Eagle, um, mm. which he really asserts a little bit creepily, strongly. Mm. Golden Eagle. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, he is this uh, mentor in his mind uh, for these people who know perfectly well what they're doing in the realm of wrestling. These two brothers have already won Olympic gold for America, as played by Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo. 
uh, as they are brought under his wings, so to speak. Um, it's, a, it's a downward spiral type trajectory to this narrative, and that's going to be apparent pretty early on, whether you knew anything about these people before. And like, um, like you, Thomas, I knew absolutely nothing about the Schultz brothers. Um, yeah, or DuPont, who comes from one of the richest families yeah, in America. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, they're, they're the, the American equivalent of royalty, basically. Yeah, and mm. as mad. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Vanessa Redgrave's this incredibly sinister presence throughout it as uh, John Dupont's mother, uh, who disapproves of his uh, being involved in anything so low and base as wrestling. Little does she know how uh, intimately he involved he is with this sport, um, that he is seemingly his whole identity he's hinged upon uh, bringing gold to America for this and himself into close um, personal contact with uh, the country's elite wrestlers. I love this film. <laughs> I absolutely adore this film. I think Bennett Miller is quickly becoming one of my favourite directors mm. after Capote, Moneyball. And I finally saw his, doc, his 1998 documentary today, The Cruise, which is about a, um, a very articulate sort of philosopher come to a guide in the buses of New York in the late 90s. And really, again, has very sort of similarities and links to some of these other films in terms of obsessional masculinity. And that's just kind of a very loose link, I guess, to, to Foxcatcher. But I think what was there in Capote, which drew me to Bennett Miller initially, and it's here in spades really, is the show don't tell approach to cinema, which is pretty rare, let's be honest, nowadays in, the, in multiplexes. And there's almost no use of score in the first 15 minutes. It's just silence, sparseness, and an atmosphere to set up these characters. And um, I think you said this in, in one of your reviews, Thomas, and it was a scene that struck me. There's a moment early on when we just see the two brothers, played by Mark Ruffalo and Channing Tatum, both mm. in really remarkable performances, just engage in some wrestling training, and it's like experimental dance. I mean, it's like mm. complete dance and all of the conflicts, all of the frustration, all of the back history just emerges in this sort of five-minute scene of bodies slapping against each other. And it's a remarkable and it really sets Everything the tone. you need to know about those guys is in that scene. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, this is, I mean, I think it's such a perfect film in, in many ways. And even Steve Carell, I think, is really, really spooky. But it's one of the things that did strike me as I was watching it, and you mentioned the Vanessa Redgrave character, Cerise, is this film feels almost like gothic literature. I mean, the mansion, the Dupont mansion that they get relocated to the fog the mist that's almost like something out of kind of a jane Eyre type passage um and we have the kind of the mother who looks down from windows from the upper levels of the building and then we have this very strange character of john dupont luring that you know and playing on the class issue which is there in gothic literature as well i mean there's such a strange dynamic the way in which the film mimics that older style of literary to frame this really sort of tense triangular dynamic between the two brothers and john dupont that's a really great observation about the gothic literature thing yeah that, that's perfect that makes so much sense in the last review when i was talking about artistic license there's a very interesting piece of artistic license in this film which is the the, the mother character played by vanessa redgraves had actually died in real life before the events of this film take place but see i'd argue that it was a really canny move for the filmmakers to put her in as a character because her presence needed to be there on screen watching and judging her son and i think Carell's a really impressive as dupont who is this sort of fatherly figure in many ways to, to these two younger guys who are wrestlers but he's so infantile as well like he just desperately wants to please his mother you know he is the boy who never grew up with friends and he you know he, he needs to buy them he needs to, to to be loved and 
and yeah, I didn't know how this film was going to pan out. You know something bad is going to go down because that is in the air. But I, I didn't know who was going to be the instigator and who was going to be the victim. I, I really, my sympathy shifted with all these characters several times throughout the film. You know, as, as different as various characters embody different levels of sort of patheticness or, or aggressiveness or, or sympathy. I think Channing Tatum does remarkable work in this as a character who doesn't say a lot, doesn't really... He's not very expressive. I mean, this is the character's not expressive, but I think Tatum conveys an enormous amount of information with his sort of sad, hulking body language. I think this is impressive work for him. Yeah, I think he's, he's, uh, his character is self-aware enough to know that he is not as articulate as he would like to be, and there are a couple of times where he just lashes out bodily because he's so uh, incapable of properly expressing himself. And, uh, yeah, he, he is extraordinary, Channing Tatum. I, I'm completely won over to him. Um, uh, years ago, and I, I think the first thing I saw him in actually was Magic Mike. Yeah, same. With low expectations mm. and was very taken by him in that. Likewise, yeah. So, yeah, it's quite a revelation. An, <laughs> yeah, re- yeah, an ongoing yeah. revelation. Magic Mike's a great film. It yeah. is, and the sequel will probably be fluff, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, this is a really uncomfortable viewing experience. Mm. It's a really strong film, but, geez, some, some of those scenes. A scene, uh, a scene where he, um, Tatum's character, Mark Schultz, gets up to deliver a speech in front of a bunch of bigwigs, a speech clearly scripted by DuPont, is excruciating mm. uh, as he praises his uh, father figure. Um, and so it's just, oh, it's just... Uh, it's had me squirming, and I, I kind of respect that. Yeah, and just to return to that point I mentioned earlier about the biopics that are episodic, this one is not like that at all. This one has, well, you could say some clear intentions, but it's trying to do something very much underneath the surface, even though that's the what we get really is surfaces and we have to sort of infer a lot. But this film is very much about class. It's also very much about 80s America and, and the corporatization of America. And there's a, a chilling scene early on where DuPont sits down when he first meets the, the Schultz character and says... I want to talk to you about America. And it's almost a proto-Reaganite type spiel that he gives about America needing to reclaim its toughness and its hardness. And wrestling is a sort of such a perfect sort of social metaphor for Reagan's kind of empire of, of the 80s. Look, I think, yeah, I just think this is a remarkable... I wish we had more time, time to talk about because I just think it's such a remarkable film. Yeah, look, I think it's funny. We, 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 talk, we take this show off usually throughout late December and, and most of January because it, f- films are scarce in Australia, like good films, it's just not being released. But we've sort of been inundated with some really amazing stuff this year, so that's why we're doing this frantic catch-up show to gush all about our favourite films. So I think we've, we've, we've got less than ten minutes. I'm going to talk about one of my favourite films, which is Wild. So um, this, this is a film, it's very much a star vehicle for Reese Witherspoon. It's based on a memoir written by a woman named Cheryl Strayed. That, that is her, her actual name. And it's, it's one of... I really didn't want to see this. It's one of these... person has issues walks off into the wilderness to find themselves <laughs> films. We've seen these with tracks, Into the Wild, even things like Eat, Pray, Love, it's kind of this God. deal. And I, I, I don't... Tracks I didn't mind, but I sort of tolerate these films at best, and I wasn't expecting to be so blown away by Wild and incredibly moved to tears at point. It's, and I think the strength of this film is we just see her start the journey, and the focus is on her very immediate physical concerns. So we feel her feet being sore and the, her pack being heavy. And as she takes this journey, she starts to remember things. She starts to process what's happened in her life, and we see all the bits and pieces through flashback. And I don't know, that just becomes really quite profound and moving. Laura Dern plays her mother in flashbacks. She's 
incredible in this film. I've always had a big soft spot for Laura Dern, but she really sort of reaches new heights, I think, in her supporting role in this. Uh, I think this is just, this is how you do the person walks into the wilderness to find themselves. And, and the take-home message also is not necessarily one of redemption or, or healing. It's learning to accept and be happy with who you are, to say, yeah, this thing, these things happened, it's made me who I am today, and I'm really quite fine with that. The end result is great. I think it's a reasonably artful film as well, actually. Yeah, there's uh, there is there is some yeah. shown don't tell sorts of stuff. We, we fairly quickly twig that she's out of her depth when she first hits the track, uh, and that's shown rather than we we could. Uh, I suppose not give her the benefit of the doubt and presume that, but we don't. Uh, but it's, it's given to us in, in degrees that we realise just her struggles to get this uh, enormous backpack on, and it's of course overly, it's massively overly stocked. Shortly, uh, we're seeing her put her tent up, and we know she's never put one of these things up before in her life because it just shows us her struggle with the tent, and then later, uh, the terrible discovery that her stove won't somehow work just you know, magically. Um, you know, she's underprepared. But determined, and we get that. And um, one of the, the, the things I think actually that I was most impressed with this film is how it um, navigated its way around some actually really difficult and uncomfortable sexual territory, not least when she's in the wild and a, a few men she encounters for various reasons and with various degrees of uh, actuality are, are presented as sexual threats, um, much more than the wild itself. The, uh, the animal kingdom is present but at a distance, but the humans are potentially troubled. That stuff's brilliant. We yeah. see, and look, as, as a guy who's never had that experience of, I suppose, being threatened by another person who probably doesn't really seriously wish me any harm, but their presence is threatening because I don't know what they're going to do. I think the film brilliantly captured that unknown factor when she comes across various men. Yeah, the threat of sexual violence hovers over this entire film. In fact, almost every um, uh, meeting she has with another male is kind of bookended or sort of framed with the potential for sexual violence, which was an interesting sort of decision given the repetition of that which maybe sort of harks back to some of the flashbacks we see later on look like you Thomas I was going to avoid this film like the plague I stupidly judged on its trailer and it wasn't until you said no get over yourself and go and see it that I decided to and look I have to say you know because last I'm, I'm not a big fan of sort of pseudo new age sort of spiritual journey type films it really avoids that up until probably the last scene for me and it's more about the, the experience of being inside your own head and it captures that through some very darkly comic voiceover work and and the, you know everything from the footsteps and counting footsteps to song lyrics that get stuck and the, just the grueling physical experience of being alone stuck in your own head and the physical toll of this of this journey i think it was quite smart and reese witherspoon i was really impressed yeah look it, it's great to see a sort of return to form she went a bit light and fluffy for a while but um i've always loved her and i, I think this is again one of her her, her her best films that's wild we also spoke about Foxcatcher. both of those very much recommended quickly though josh you and i both went to see kingsman at the secret service guilty pleasure of the decade yeah, absolutely agree yep. it's like a bond film made by mckay takashi so irresponsible shockingly violent i had a ball uh the interview josh and i continue to dis- disagree over anything with seth rogan you couldn't stand it i got quite a few laughs I out of it i didn't dislike it i just didn't find it funny okay well we disagree so we can't we can't we can't advise anybody on whether they should see that or not we watch team america 
still Alice is still screening. See it for Julianne Moore and nothing else. It's a hallmark card film, but an amazing central performance. Night Will Fall is worth going to see the classic in Elsnewick, an astonishing film about a documentary called German Concentration Camp Factual Survey, which was being made during the Second World War and then got shelved for political reasons. Uh, look, this is a Night Will Fall is about that doco. It contains some very confronting footage that was taken for the original film, but it really is worth tracking this film uh, down and, and yeah, seeing it. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's sort of one of those films that's, it's really worth seeing. And what else? Josh, you went to see Penguins of Madagascar. How was that? That was fun. It was fun because I saw it on a day that was, I think, 45 degrees at the start of January, so it, uh, it killed 90 minutes in an air-conditioned cinema. <laughs> And that's Plato's Game, first <laughs> show back for 2015. I think we're now up to speed. We're going to do one of our. We're going to go back to normal next week. Our three film reviews uh, in a lot more depth than we were able to do tonight. I think we're going to have a civil rights theme next week. We're going to take a look at Citizen Four, the Martin Luther King Selma. We might get to Rosewater as well. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Three Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.